All right, all right, check, check. Hello, 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 hello. Um, at this time, if you need a Bible today, children, you guys can go. If you need a Bible today to follow along, the, the projector decided to not work. So I would love that you follow along with a Bible. Now the bridge is staying with me today. Nice try. Um, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. And one of the ushers who are walking around with physical Bibles, those are books printed with paper, um, would love to hand you one that you can follow along today. My name is Jared Callahan. I have been on staff here for a while, and I have the privilege today of opening the scriptures with you. Bye. If only we could all skip through church every day. That would be a good thing. Today is good to be with you on kind of a weird Sunday. Uh, Today is a weird Sunday in that uh, the lectionary scriptures, the scriptures picked out by the church hundreds of years ago and given to us today to open up. It's what the scriptures that guide the sermons that we do. The reason preachers don't just pick their favorite sermon is because if Pastor D or I or Melissa or anybody else that came up front was just to pick whatever we wanted, you would only hear a small snippet of scripture. In fact, you'd only hear the ones that we want to either aim at you or aim at ourselves. And so the lectionary scripture today is a very weird blend of apocalyptic scripture. And so it's weird for me to come up and stand before you as we have our like happy new year, first day of church. We have Advent, which is its whole other thing. And then the scriptures that we're supposed to dive into are this like this end of the world. One person's going to be snatched out of a field and the other person will be left. There's like corny, cheesy 1980s movies made about the scriptures that we're supposed to open today. And so we're going to go there. We're going to navigate it. And I'm going to start with a story from my childhood, as all good apocalyptic stories should start. Um, I was in seventh grade once, and when I was in seventh grade, I was a tiny human being. I was not all that is man that stands before you today. Um, why is that funny? Uh, I was a seventh grade little leprechaun-looking child at McCallamy River Junior High School in Lodi, California, and it was our whoppingly huge graduating class of, like, 30. Um, and so it was a small school where you couldn't get away from anybody, and this particular year, while I was a seventh grader, the eighth graders were terrible. There were a couple bullies in the 8th grade class, Michael Wishwain and Jeremy Potts. I hope they listened to the recording of this sermon today and have the fear of God put into them. They were the worst human beings as you could ever pick for 8th graders to have. They had black souls. And Michael Wishwain, uh, it's the truth. Um, if any of you have ever seen the movie that plays on loop during the holiday season on TNT, The Christmas Story, the, the bullies in that movie perfectly sum up for you what I'm going to communicate to you about Michael and Jeremy, only it was reversed. Michael was the large one. Um, But he was the sidekick because Jeremy, even though he was small in stature, was nasty. He was a pit bull of a man um, who was just short and stocky and had things between his teeth. And he had this pent-up anger that came from Lord knows where. Jeremy was a terrible human being. And so, as a 7th grade male concerned with survival, um, we would plan our days around avoiding Jeremy and Michael. And we could do that very well. I knew where they would be. We knew where their lockers were. We figured out that at lunch they had this part of the playground, and if they by any means wanted our area of the football field like it was theirs, they just had free reign. There was one time of the day where we could not avoid Jeremy and Michael. And it was in between 7th grade and 8th grade PE. And in between the two PEs, both groups of boys changed at the same time in the locker room where there was no authority figure. And so every day we would avoid, we would avoid, we would eat lunch, we would move, we would dance, we would skate around. And then there came the time after, in the afternoon every day where we had to go into the locker room with them. And it was terrible. They were terrible to us. They would give you a forearm up against the locker. They'd pants you in front of everybody else and make fun of you. Like, it was bad. And it got to a point where one day they were picking on a guy named Mel, who was an easy target. Mel was like a part of the Oceanographers Club, like Junior America Club. Um, he had glasses. Uh, he was just an easy target. 
And one day it got really bad and Jeremy was being physical with Mel. And our friend Brandon, 7th grade Brandon, uh, decided to stand up to Jeremy. And Brandon was the strongest, smartest, and most tan of us 7th grade males. And so we thought, if ever there was a hope, it was going to lie in Brandon Dahl. And Brandon stepped up to Jeremy... And there was this moment of anticipation. There's this like, like the the locker room held its breath as Brandon said, knock it off. And Jeremy turned and his wrath multiplied tenfold. And he grabbed Brandon and shoved him against the locker and forearmed to his throat and made sure that we knew that we were oppressed. That we had no hope in the situation, that there was no way out. Now, it's interesting to open up the scriptures that we do today, being the church in America in 2013, we don't have a story that is our communal story of oppression. We just don't. We do what you want. You get in your car, you can drive where you want today, you can eat where you want today. I mean, you can vote how you want, you can spend your money where you want. We don't have a story that is our communal story of oppression where we could say something like, Jeremy, and we can all just write, like gather together and have a, a communal like the seventh grade guys did of, oh, Jeremy, right? We don't have it. And so we tell stories of people groups that do. Movies that I loved in college, Braveheart, oh, England, oh, the Scott, you know, like the, the, the group of the small, the, the group of the small and the smart and the cunning, but the outnumbered, the oppressed people rally together. The Matrix, okay? The small, the group, the outside, the oppressed, and then now I'm not going to spoil it for you, but the number one movie in the world, The Hunger Games, if you haven't found the Christological meaning in that movie yet, get on it, okay? The Hunger Games, I will not ruin it for you. It is about the oppressed. District 11 and 12, figuring out ways to rally against the oppressors. So even though it's not our story, the stories that we as a global community latch to are these stories of oppressed people fighting against some injustice, something that dominates us, that keeps us from being all that we should be. This season of Advent is an interesting season because it's a season of expecting. The, the liturgy that the group, the, the extended family read to you was beautiful, and I hope you caught it. I'm sorry that we couldn't have it on the screen for you today, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous language for what we expect in a Savior. I've only eagerly anticipated one birth of one baby in my whole life. I have no children, um, and in fact, I've never been close enough with any aunts or uncles where, well, they were pregnant, I was excited for it. The only birth that I was ever really excited for is when I was age 10, and my younger brother was age 7, my mom got pregnant. Um, and so they announced it to us, and it was just a big deal. I remember where we were, and they said, we have a surprise for you, we're going to have a baby, and we're like, ah! We don't even know what that means, but we're just so excited. And they did a great job as parents, um, helping bring us into the process. So we were a part of the process of decorating the unnamed baby's room and getting it excited and going through the store as soon as we found out it was going to be a boy. What do you think we should name him? What do you think he would like? What should we decorate the room? Then it came to naming the baby and they brought our opinions into naming the baby and I wanted to name him Michael Jordan Callahan and my mom was not into it. Um, that's actually not true. My mom wanted to name him Michael Jordan Callahan. We were like, that's weird. What if Michael Jordan gets weird? And it was true. He got weird. So it's good that we didn't do that. So Michael Jacob Callahan, he was named, um, was going to be brought into this world. And so the time came where we thought he was going to be born. And we went to the hospital to age 10 and 7. And we were excited. And we were in the waiting room with all the other excitement that happens. And we were waiting and nothing happened. And we were waiting and nothing happened. And then another family would come in and they'd rush in. We'd wait. And their dad would come out and be like, it's a girl. And they'd be like, yay! And we'd be like, what the heck, Michael? And we waited and we waited. Day one, no baby. Went home, went to sleep. It was hard to sleep, but we went to sleep. The day two, got to miss school. Waited, waited, waited. Nothing, nothing, 
Nothing. You can only fill out the like zoo news or whatever they have in a doctor's office so many times. You know, it gets boring. And then at the end of the night, as a 10 and a 7-year-old, we start falling asleep. So they sent us home with grandma and grandpa. By day two, family had started driving in. I mean, we had both sets of grandparents, aunts and uncles had come in from San Francisco. Like everybody had gathered for this birth and nothing had happened. And so they sent us home. And so I remember grandma and grandpa were so kind to us. My brother and I had uh, bunk beds and they said, you can lay out your clothes strategically so that if in the middle of the night we have to awake and get to the hospital, you could put on your clothes while hopping towards the door. So we laid out underwear, pants, shirt, sock, shoes, backpack, packed. And so we, it was one of those things, we got, we got into bed, and it was one of those moments where when you hit the pillow, like, you're out. But then just as fast, I don't remember sleeping a wink, but apparently 20 minutes later, Michael was born. And we missed it. We straight missed it. We had waited for 48 hours. We had anticipated. We had had been there as watching other people celebrate the coming of what they were expecting, and we had none. And so we got dressed. We hustled there. We got to the hospital, and we got to hold my baby brother, Michael. And so, imagine, I had a photo of me holding Michael. So, uh, side note, um, I will put the video that I was going to show during the sermon, which is good, and the photo of me holding my brother, Michael, on my Facebook wall today. So if you would like to see that, it's public. Give me some time after the church to see it. Zalen? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. For those of you who do not have Facebook, you can either text me or I'll email to you. We'll get it to you. Or next week, maybe we'll show up before the service. Thank you for that. See, we're a community. Okay, so that's the only time I've ever awaited a birth for anything. And now we get to the Christmas season. We get to Christmas, and I knew I was going to be preaching a sermon, and so I waited and I watched, knowing that every year, a conversation topic amongst our friends is we're annoyed with how early Christmas stuff is debuted in stores, in culture. Every year I'm annoyed. And so I had planned, like most years now, it starts to be in November 14th, November 16th. It's the week before Thanksgiving, and people are outraged that there's Christmas stuff in the stores. And this year, in a store, commercials on TV, the week before Halloween, was Christmas stuff. October 27th, 28th. Full-on Christmas stuff. First house that I saw decorated? November 3rd. I wrote it down. November 3rd, there was a house in our neighborhood that had Christmas lights, blow-up, like, anima things in their yard, and Christmas music playing so that walker passerbys could hear the Christmas music. Now, every year, this is a confession for me, every year, I, I love Christmas. I love it. I love the family stuff. I love the food. I love Christmas movies. I love it. I'll rewatch Christmas movies the same season. I love Christmas music. I love that during Christmas season overtly songs about Jesus are played on secular radio. I just love it. That even my family members that aren't religious are like singing Christmas songs that are clearly about the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And that they talk about giving and and what they're thankful for. It's fantastic. I love the whole thing. This is the confession. Every year, Christmas Day comes, and the week before is so intense. It's like being in the hospital. It's like so good. You're so excited. But every year, Christmas Day, about noon, 1230, Every year, without fail, I'm disappointed. Every year. It gets to a point where I realize, even after the morning or whatever happens, or the family traditions, or you eat, every year, all of a sudden I realize, today is just a day. The sun came up. The sun is going down. The sun is down. That was Christmas. It's like the focus shifts off Christmas already by Christmas night, unless you have to do, like, double family duty and you're still celebrating hardcore. Like, the buildup is so much that by noon or 1230 or in the afternoon, it's like, oh, that was it. That was Christmas. 
and your attention turns to the next thing. Christmas for me is perpetually high hopes, not fulfilled. The sermon title today is What Are We Waiting For? Bad grammar for what are we waiting? Okay? What are we waiting for? I want to go to some scriptures. And normally when we preach a scripture, we pick like one or two from the lectionary and we read those scriptures and then we give you some deep knowledge about them. Today I want to go to what an oppressed people group we're hoping for. And I want to read a bunch of scripture. And because we don't have it on the board, I want you to just let it wash over you before I give you one to open up to later um, to read along with me. But let these wash over you about what people were hoping for when they were oppressed. These are not the hopes of a people who can do whatever they want. These are not the hopes of a people who have music on the radio and can eat whatever they want and can do whatever they want. This is what an oppressed people were hoping for when they were adventing, when they were waiting for a savior. So here's the selections of reading from the Old Testament. Psalm 146, it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Isaiah 40 says, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Psalm 147. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Pause. We've got to separate this already. Lord was not Jesus for them. The Lord was like the word Lord, as in the owner, the rightful owner. So like the lords and the ladies. If you were a Lord, that means you were the rightful owner to, namely, the land and the property. So when they use Lord in the rest of these scriptures, they're not saying Jesus, whose face you see inaccurately drawn all over stuff or put on crucifixes, right? Like, like they're talking about the Lord, the righteous one, the one who will come back and reclaim, okay? So the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Psalm 62. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. Psalm 25. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 130. I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. Psalm 130 later says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him full redemption. What does that sound like to an oppressed people? Full redemption. Proverbs 23. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. In Zechariah 9 it says, Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Jeremiah 29.11, you maybe heard this one, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then the good news, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and this is a story that hopefully if you attend this church and pay attention over the next month, you're going to hear the story over and over. Jesus shows up. And un, like, unknowledgeable to him as a baby, because I got in a conversation about someone who didn't believe this week, well, like, maybe he just thought he fit the scriptures, and so he started acting in them. For all the scriptures that existed before Jesus, prophecies for Jesus to be born where Jesus was born, that Jesus is born fulfilling these prophecies and starts to live into his calling as the Savior. And this is where we need to re-examine the hope. The hope of this people group, of the oppressed, was someone who will rescue us. The hope is in 
William Wallace. The hope is in Katniss. The hope is in Neo. The hope is in the one who will show up and free us from this oppression. And Jesus shows up and he's like, money? Whose face is on money? Oh, the government's face is on money. Give the money back to the government. What? Wait, what? Violence? Not into that. If you get struck, turn it around. If you get made to be oppressed by the rules, if they, if they can make you carry their coats, don't just carry it for the law for one mile. Carry it for two. Because then the power shifts. What? That's not power. I was expecting you to be really buff. I was expecting you to be like 7'2", like Shaquille O'Neal, but fast. Like LeBron James, but believing in God. Right? Like, this, I was expecting... I was expecting this double sword wheeling character to show up and be like, justice! And then now, this big oppressor falls to the oppressed. And Jesus shows up and hangs out with sinners and heals people who are broken and he gives sight to people who are blind and he fixes people who are crippled and he brings people back from the dead. Now, really cool commentary. If you're a disciple and your hope is in miracle warrior savior and you know that the guy you're following who you believe is the savior can bring people back from the dead. We look at Peter when he picks up a sword in the garden like he's ridiculous. Peter spent three years with Jesus and still missed it. His hope was off. He was still expecting that there would be some sword-blazing thing and that Jesus was slow-playing it because they knew he could raise people from the dead. So it doesn't matter if your army is small if you have dead people on your team. No, you're literally invincible. Literally. We could go into battle and Jesus literally could, as arrows hit my body, say, healed, 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 go, repower, like a video game. That's what Peter was still expecting up till the night that Jesus died. Their hope was off. You like the video game reference. I heard you chuckle. Okay. The hope was off. So, what are we waiting for? The first part of that question is what? What are we waiting for? Do we miss what we're looking at? Maybe my hope is always broken and disappointed in Christmas because even though I believe with my head and believe with my heart what Jesus is, I still let all those under other things, not bad enough themselves, just things about Christmas, co-opt my hope. My hope is in good family time. My hope is in giving. My hope is in... I, these, I take these things and I make an idol out of the things I'm hoping for. And therefore, every year, Christmas is a letdown because it's just another day. It's not even the day Jesus was actually born. March. So, does that make sense? Guess to me. There's actually 150 days that they, they can point good fingers on when Jesus was born, and none of them are December 25th. So, don't let that be this idol then that is what Christmas is for you or for me. What are we waiting for? Maybe my hope is broken. When I use the word hope, I say things like, I hope my sports team wins. I hope my fantasy team does well this week. Right? I hope you have a great day. I hope you have a good day. I hope I get something good for Christmas. Insert video on my Facebook wall. Okay? The word hope in me is broken. And so I want to look at a second batch of scriptures. I want to look at a batch of scriptures that are written in the New Testament by people who had spent time around Jesus. Because their hope isn't misplaced. Their hope isn't co-opted. Their hope isn't broken like mine. Their hope is in God for what God said God was. 
Their hope is in Christ as the Savior. So let's listen to these, and then I'll tie it together for us at the end. In Hebrews, it says this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Romans, it says, Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character begats hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Later in Romans 15, it says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Colossians 1 in the intro, it says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thessalonians 5. But since we belong to that day, or to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as the helmet. Titus, it says, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Hebrews 6 says, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end, in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience will inherit what has been promised. Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I kept these ones for the end. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Romans 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And in Hebrews it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Step one for me to fix my broken hope is to have enough trust in God to believe that God is who God says God is. And I can't do that by, with words. And I can't do that with a one-time thing in my heart. I show you that by the way that I live. Do I trust that God is the Savior? Do I trust that God is Emmanuel, God with us? Do I trust that God came through Jesus, God who saves? Yeshua, Josh, is the name that we have for that. God who saves. And then if I believe it, if I, if I trust, do I have enough faith to live it out? Do I have enough faith to live differently than culture that kind of co-ops this message of a Savior and makes it red, green, and white and some figurines? That takes the reality of a Savior and makes it cost $179 for a nativity porcelain set in a store. You see? That's a terrifying shift. Because when we live this, we're like, oh, it's Jesus, it's porcelain, and it's small. It's in my house. But that's so, so, so far from living over here with unbroken hope. My hope takes faith. The best quote I've heard about faith in a really long time, because I would have always my whole life until about two weeks ago said that faith is believing in what you don't see. Your faith is this, like, the gap where intellect... Like, faith is a word that my friends that don't believe in God use like it's a cuss word. Like, oh, you have faith? Like, you're weak. You have faith? Well, then that's just because your intellect can't figure it all out. Bill Johnson, who Chip Picking gave me this great quote um, as I'm listening to this speaker, this preacher, Bill Johnson. He said, faith 
is accepting the power of the unseen. Faith is accepting the power of the unseen. If you believe in God, then you believe that there is a power that's bigger than you, that loves you, that's huge, that's dictating all this. And we, as we gather today, are actually an oppressed small people group functioning in the land of empire. We are functioning in this land that is the United States that has some ideological things that kind of look like what we believe, but it's not what we believe. And as we go from this place, what does it mean to have a faith that isn't this blind, isn't this absence of knowledge, a faith that actually puts my body and my spending and my time and my prayer and everything that I've got, all my gifts, tangible or unseen, into and gives it over to a power that is real, but is unseen to me. Faith is accepting the power of the unseen. Okay, this brings us to the end. The scriptures of today. You can turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. I'll give you time to get there too. You want to hear me rant a little bit while you turn there? Go ahead. You've got time. Okay. I love technology. I was a media comm in college. I absolutely love how technology changes the world and how we're using it. And when it fails, it's a bummer, but whatever, we move on. The problem with doing our scriptures on our phone, and I'm a big, I do the scripture a day on my phone because it's my check because I'm always on Instagram or Twitter. And before I do that, I'd check the scripture every day. So I love technology and stuff. The problem with typing a verse into a smartphone is you lose the context. We really do lose the context of that Isaiah comes before or after what it comes before or after. And so, it's okay if you use your your cell phones for scripture. Great. I challenge you to get a Bible. Take the one that you're borrowing now. Get one on your way out. Flip open a Bible every once in a while when you read the Bible because it will help give you context for what comes before and after. Okay? There's the rant. Isaiah. I'm going to set up the Isaiah verse with uh, scripture from Jesus. Follow along. Here we go. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says this one-line sentence. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Turn from your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of, get, of heaven is near. Turn from your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is ear, near. And this is the problem. This is why English is such a problem. The word near here in the Greek does not mean near like close. It means a couple things. It says in the Greek translation at the bottom of my Bible, it says turn from your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven has come. Interesting that there's a word there that could be translated is near, is close, is coming soon, is worth waiting for. And then another translation of it is has come, is here, has arrived. Now we take that as our lens to read Isaiah. Ready? And if mine doesn't sound like yours, it's okay. It says this, Isaiah 2. This is another vision that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days... The temple of the Lord in Jerusalem will become the most important place on earth. People from all over the world will go there to worship. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Israel, or Zion. There he will teach us his ways, so we may obey him. For in those days the Lord's teaching and his words will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will settle international disputes. All the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. All wars will stop. All military training will come to an end. Come, people of Israel, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We are living post-Jesus. The kingdom has come. 
We are participating in a kingdom that's real and alive and moving on earth now. And at the same time, there's this element of also expecting. And so in this season of Advent, I challenge you, I invite you to participate. And we've done that very simply with this. This is our best efforts. Years of work has gone into this. Prayer has gone into this. This is our challenge to you. And we call it re-adventing. It's a play on words. To advent. Now you know about advent. To come. The expecting. But it's also the word reinventing. May my broken hope, may my co-opted Christmas expectations be pulled from where they are here back over to where they are here by efforts like this. That this is a miniature bridge to help me every day. It's got a calendar every day to help move me from a place of Christmas lists to Savior. From what do we need to buy my mom to justice. From we haven't booked our plane tickets yet to peace. And that every day as a community we may take baby steps across that bridge back into a hope that's unbroken. I'm excited to, to lead us here at the end of this sermon into communion. Because communion is that. It's our efforts monthly in this church, weekly in other churches, um, to come before the table of the Lord and say, I remember. I remember and I have hope. I have hope that you were who you said you were. That true peace comes not in what I bring to the season, but what you brought to it. And so I'm going to dismiss you. And the communion are set up, uh, elements are set up in tables around the back corners. Uh, you have the families that are going to be hosting those are going to be behind the tables. Um, Jeremy's going to play. And I would ask that you would go take the elements, uh, both the bread that represents the body of Christ and the blood that represents the blood of Christ. And you take and hold them and come back and take your seat. If you need someone to go to the table for you, you can slip up your hand and an usher will go and bring you the elements back to your seat. Um, And then we'll go to the Lord's table together. So in this time, uh, we will go to the Lord's table now. I'll pray for it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for family for all. I thank you for helping us be a church where people can come into this place single, alone, lonely, broken, split, having moved sometimes from a place that was family to brokenness and that you can find family here, that we find a friendship that runs deep as we're rooted in your love. God, I pray as we go to the table today that we will recognize our place in your new family, that we will have a hope as we've been grafted in, as we've been adopted into the family of God. We've been given the family name, We are Israel, the people of Israel who struggle with God, who wrestle with your ways, who strive and fall short, who have hope and then realize that it continually is broken or misplaced. God, in this day, the first season of Advent, the first Sunday of the new church calendar, return our hope to you. Bring us back to a place that we've never been before, a place of true peace, a place of of true healing, a place at your table. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things as we move to the table. Amen. Move as you wish.